The scripture is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of, you, one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. This is the gospel of the Lord. I wonder, as I pull up my slides controller here, I wonder why you are here this morning. I don't mean like why you exist uh, this morning. I mean, why are you in church today? What is your motivation? Is there something you hope to get out of this? Maybe encouragement, maybe assurance, maybe some kind of help with daily living, all good things to be looking for. Uh, maybe there are people you look forward to seeing. Maybe there's a sense of obligation. Maybe it was just your turn to serve as a greeter or hall monitor or in some other way and otherwise uh, not get, going out in the cold might have sounded really good this morning. Sounded really great to me, but I had the sense of obligation. No, that's not it. But uh, maybe it's just a sense of obligation that you're just supposed to go to church. Well, we are in sermon number three, by my count, in our series on the church. Uh, we've talked about what the church even is in the first sermon. Last week, we started looking at uh, the church's work or the church's role in God's plan. Remember, the heart of what it means for us to be the church is not first and foremost about anything we do, but about what God has done for us. It's about the church is a, a gathering that God has gathered us together. And so I hope we come here first and foremost simply to focus our hearts and minds together on that grace of God that has been 
given to us. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful picture of church. We come to receive what God has given. There are parts of the church, parts of worship service that feel incredibly passive. And I've mentioned this before. It's a good goal to try to encourage you know, participation. We sing together and other things, but I think there are other parts that are passive, not as a bug, but as a feature. Lord's Supper, you simply receive. The word is read and preached. We simply receive. It reminds us that this is ultimately not about us doing something for God, but receiving grace that God has given to us, as we sang earlier. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But, as we saw looking at last week's text, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God has prepared beforehand these good works that we should walk in them. And this, too, is grace because God accepts those works. God delights those works, those sacrifices, imperfect and sin-tainted, though they still are. He accepts them through Jesus Christ. Our works, like ourselves, are acceptable to God because they are covered by the blood of Christ. And so with that confidence, then, what kind of works should we be doing? What should we be bringing? Uh, Last week, I summarized the work of the church in terms of three E's. I didn't invent this. I have no idea who did. Uh, There's exaltation, edification, and evangelism. You can think of exaltation as serving God, bringing our our praises, but also serving God with all of our lives. Edification as serving one another. And evangelism, of course, serving the lost uh, by sharing the gospel. I sort of discussed exaltation last week. It wasn't quite a sermon about corporate worship. Maybe that's something I could or should include later in the series. But what I wanted to show, though, is that all three of these E's are ultimately about the glory of God, ultimately serving God. We are built together in one body to glorify God together, so we should try to order our fellowship and our relationships, all of our church life around glorifying God, our motivation and goal in edifying one another is God's glory, our motivation and goal in evangelism is also God's glory. To put that another way, as we've said before, Christ first in our relationships, Christ first in our community. The goal is the preeminence of Christ, as Colossians puts it, in all things. But today, uh, we are talking about that second E, edification, serving one another. To edify means to build up, right? An edifice is a building. Uh, We might think of it in terms of helping one another along toward maturity, concept that comes up in our sermon text this morning, the mature man or mature manhood. Uh, What does that mean? What is Christian maturity and how do we help each other to get there? Well, the text that Keandre read for us uh, is one where Paul gives kind of a big picture perspective on what the pursuit of Christian maturity looks like within the life of the local church. The big picture, that big picture is the foundation for all the other uh, practical application that you're going to find in the rest of chapter 4 and on into all of chapter 5, most of chapter 6. And then this big picture of maturity that all those practical things are are built on 
it itself is built on the foundation of Paul's exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapters 1 through 3. Here's your big overall picture of the logic of Ephesians. Chapter 1, Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then Paul also, again, couples that with the preeminence of Christ as the ultimate point to that redemption, that Christ is head over all things. Chapter 2, which I read earlier, By grace we have been saved through faith, and we're no longer strangers to God. God is building us together into a holy temple, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And the upshot of all of this at the end of of chapter 3 is the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 1. And therefore, Paul says, that therefore means because of everything I've just said, because of the redemption in Christ Jesus uh, that is ultimately aimed at the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, the call of the gospel, the call to be the temple of God, the place where the glory of God dwells. So all the practical instruction is built on this picture of maturity, maturity, and that picture of maturity is an outworking of a consequence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the bits of practical instruction are there to help us flesh out this call to maturity here and now. And the call to maturity is about living in a manner worthy of the gospel's call on our lives. So I'm going to be staying fairly big picture here. There are a lot of different ways that we can flesh out pursuing maturity in the life of the church. What's the best way to do this? You know, we could, we could emphasize small groups or Sunday school or accountability partnerships or mentoring programs. And there's different ways of doing all of those things. And I, th- I think all of those things can work if they're aimed at the right goal, right? And then all of those things can fail if they're aimed at the wrong goal or pursuing the wrong thing in the wrong way. So what I want to do this morning is just help us get on the same page as far as what we're trying to accomplish when we say that we want to build each other up. I want to dig into, pull out a few things here from Paul's vision for maturity in the church. And I've got three uh, basic points to make, if you can call them points. Uh, The first is that Paul's vision for maturity is a corporate vision rather than an individual vision. This is a, a corporate vision. It has to do with the life of the whole church. It's not limited to the life of an individual believer improving. So in verse 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So bearing with one another is the first verb that Paul uses to unpack what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And bearing with one another really means to put up with each other. It's the same word Paul uses elsewhere for putting up with affliction or enduring persecution. Absolutely love this. It is such a realistic picture of church life. 
we are going to get on each other's nerves at some point or another. We are going to hurt each other's feelings. The very first thing Paul thought to tell the Ephesians about walking in a manner worthy of our calling together is it's going to take humility and gentleness and patience, all humility and gentleness with patience, because there are times when your fellow believers will behave in a way that demands those things from you. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Failure to recognize this, I think, can lead to church hopping. You know, I started attending this church. Things were going great. Then I had a disagreement or an argument with someone, so I left or I just disengaged. And it's a shame if that happens because it means that you left just when things were getting good, right? I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking about just ordinary kind of interpersonal disagreements or arguments, not some form of abuse or unrepentant spiritual malpractice, right? But if you leave or disengage just when you start disagreeing or arguing with people, just when someone steps on your toes, then you're checking out just when you started to form actual relationships, most likely. Who do I annoy more than anyone else in the world? Raise your hand. Yes. Rebecca Von Camp, my wife. Hopefully, I'm not the person in her life who annoys her the most. I can make a few guesses over who that might be. I probably would be right. But she is the person whom I annoy the most, I believe. And if you can follow what, I'm, what I mean there. If you're not annoying someone, I think you're probably not being yourself around them. Because, frankly, you can be annoying. And so can I. <laughs> You, can, I, you and I can be worse than just annoying, right? We can sin against each other because sin is still part of our lives until Christ calls us home. So I'm not saying that it should be our goal to irritate each other or sin against each other, uh, but that it is reality if we are genuinely living in fellowship together. The only people in the world that you might not sin against are the people you've never met, right? So fellowship takes patience and gentleness and putting up with each other. Worth pointing out whenever we see it in Scripture. But the main point that I really want to draw out here from the, these verses is that walking in a manner worthy of our calling is a corporate endeavor. It's a group project. That's why it takes patience, right? And it's not a, the kind of group project that we might think of like you might think of a support group or a study group where a group of people get together to help each individual meet their individual goals. It's a group project because what we're doing when we, when we put up with each other is to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is this unity that is already a reality, one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. It's a, it's a group or corporate project because God has made us one and that is part of our calling is to live that out. See, we tend to have an individualistic concept of maturity generally in our culture and it can bleed into our understanding of discipleship. If I were to use that phrase completely out of context, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, your mind might go straight to things like 
personal daily devotions, personal evangelism, personal purity in your own life, all of which are good things, uh, all of which are, are things we can build a biblical case for, and certainly personal purity is something that will come up in Paul's instruction. But I suspect that most of us don't do as Paul does and run straight for putting up with other Christians in love because we want to live out the reality of our unity with other believers in Christ Jesus, that walking in a manner worthy of our calling should drive us to each other, to the church, to love one another, serve one another, live out this calling together. We tend to think, again, in terms of a maturity as personal autonomy, independence, but in the New Testament teaching, maturity isn't something you can even have in isolation. If you say, I don't really need to go to church because I'm already mature, I'm secure enough in my faith, that's one of the most immature things you could say. You're not mature when you are stable and competent and able to handle life on your own. It's not Christian maturity anyway. You're mature when you are walking in a manner worthy of your calling, getting close enough to other Christians to annoy, to annoy them, right, and, and be annoyed by them, bearing with them in love, eager to live out the unity that is already a reality in Christ, contributing whatever gifts God has given you. Maturity is not a group project because each individual needs the group in order to help them go and function well as individuals and meet their goals, although I do hope we have something of that effect. The main reason maturity is a group project is that maturity is a group concept. So grace was given to each one, in verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this brings up the concept of spiritual gifts. Gifts or roles, Paul mentions here, especially when he lists some in 4.11. Uh, verse 11, they, they all seem to be teaching or leadership gifts, but he does have slightly different lists in different places, like Romans and 1 Corinthians. No one list seems to be intended to catch every potential gift. So I think the basic point uh, here, at least surely in uh, verse 7, is to recognize that we are called to serve each other and, and uh, serve in the life of the church in whatever way God has enabled us to serve. And we can have individualistic attitudes about spiritual gifts too, right? Uh, someone might say, well, I'm, I'm leaving my church because my gift is leadership and they wouldn't put me in charge of everything, right? Uh, why do I want to use my gifts? Is it for my own personal fulfillment or is it to serve the body. There's a beautiful balance here in this analogy Paul uses of the body, a beautiful balance between what we might call unity and diversity. Uh, Paul uses the same analogy, of course, in Romans as well. It, it isn't individualistic, right? Your isolated body parts don't generally survive, right? Uh, you need to be part of the group, but it's also not so collectivist that individuals might be sacrificed for the greater good, right? The whole cares about each part. I smash my pinky with a hammer, I'm going to be doing stuff to take care of it, right? Even at the inconvenience of the rest of me. Each part is important to the whole. No part exists in isolation. Each has a part to play in the body. But that service makes each part all the more important. 
And when one part serves the body's purposes well, it also fulfills its own purpose. When my eyeballs work well, they help me to see so I can find my way around and read things and do stuff, but they're also doing what they were made to do as eyes. You know, there are places where the New Testament does talk about edifying or building up an individual. There's a stronger emphasis on building up the church when the word edification is used, which is what we see in Ephesians. Gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Toward the end here, we see another summary of what this looks like. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, We do edify each other as individuals. We also build up the church as the body of Christ. We need each part functioning, growing, and functioning well. But the health of each part contributes to the health of the whole body. So what we are working toward is not just individual, but corporate maturity. That's the first main point. It's not something we do on our own as isolated individuals. And the goal of our fellowship together isn't even to make each other be more uh, secure as isolated individuals, but to actually be built together. So what does this corporate maturity look like? Well, it looks like Christ. Maturity is Christological, is what I put in my notes. Christological doesn't mean it has to do with crystals. Uh, It means that it has to do with Christ. In verse 12, again, Paul says the purpose of these gifts is the building up of the body of Christ. And in verse 13, we see where this is headed until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Finally, when we get to the word mature that I've been throwing around, Paul uses the Greek word, which is teleos. It's the adjective form of telos, which can mean maturity in the sense of full-grown, but in Paul's writings, it typically has the more common meaning of complete, fully accomplished. It can sometimes mean perfect. Telos really means the end or goal or purpose for which something was made. It's a fundamentally different way of looking at maturity. Paul doesn't see maturity as individual autonomy achieved by by growing and acquiring skills and abilities you need to be your own person and uh, pursue your, your own goals in life. For Paul, maturity, it clearly does involve using the, the gifts God has given you, which are gifts from God, but it's not aimed at you pursuing whatever goals you want and individual independence, maturity has to do with fulfilling God's purposes for us. And that goal, that purpose of God for us is measured here in verse 13 by the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So on a very basic level, that means 
We want to be like Christ. But there's a little bit more to it than that because this concept of fullness, this word fullness rather, it's a loaded word, especially as Paul uses it here in Ephesians and similar letter to the Colossians. If you go back to Ephesians 1.10, we read about God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. A few, few verses down, the church comes into it again as the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, to make a long story short, as easiest way to think of it is that fullness can also be translated as fulfillment. As we strive toward the fullness of Christ, we don't just look back on the past and say, think about the, the character of Christ that we read in the Gospels, although that is a fantastic thing to do, but we also are looking ahead to the future, to the fulfillment. It's not just that we look to the past, but also look forward to the fulfillment, the glorious return of Christ, the new completion, uh, the completion of the new creation, rather. So, ultimately, what maturity looks like for each one of us and for us together is our future union with the glorified Christ. Maturity is our future union with the glorified Christ. That is where God is leading us. That is his plan for us, the, the telos, the, the goal. That is when we will be complete. This is the point that C.S. Lewis made so well in his essay entitled The Weight of Glory. I'm just going to quote, uh, maybe you've heard this quote before, but he said, The dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a, cor a corruption such as it you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That is true, but we can go a step further. We are working not just helping one another to become on our path to be everlasting splendors, but we are building whatever little corner of the church uh, that God has placed us in into God's grand design for that heavenly temple. And this is a very different way of thinking uh, compared to the kind of church culture where we might busy ourselves with rules and checklists and tips for a successful marriage or parenting or whatever. I've been in churches where that seemed to be the primary concern, to make sure every marriage worked a certain way, that parenting was handled a certain way. I was recently given a free book, would not have paid for this book, but it was basically on the topic of how to grow your church or keep your church growing. 
And it included, toward the end, in an appendix, this outline of a money sermon. And that sermon included a breakdown of what percentage of your income should go to what expenses. And it wasn't even a very realistic breakdown at that. You know, entire ministries have been built to supposedly give you some principles that will make your life well, uh, run well, that will uh, get your finance, finances on track, make sure your kids turn out the way that you want them to turn out, uh, that your spouse stays faithful, and, and so on. Sometimes they can have helpful advice in there, but it's all so short-sighted compared to the measure of the fullness of Christ. It can also be just self-centered. I'm following these principles for living so that I can have my best life now. The motivation is the same as the motivation in the prosperity gospel. I want my health and my wealth. It's just that it's a legalistic prosperity gospel. Do this and receive your wealth instead of a cheap grace prosperity gospel. Just believe enough and get your wealth. Does that mean since we focus on fulfillment in Christ that I can justify any lifestyle I want to live by claiming that it helps me focus on Christ. There are no actual rules. It's all subjective. Of course not, right? Uh, We are still guided by God's word, even God's law. Otherwise, as sinners, we will invent a Christ in our own image and try to conform ourselves to that one. If it's true that the standard we pursue is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Christ, then everything we do, every relationship we have matters so much more. That's why C.S. Lewis called it the weight of glory, right? Well, this leads to a third point about edification, uh, about the pursuit of maturity. And this is that edification is a way of life. Edification is not a program. It's not an event we put on the calendar. Here's our edification time. It might include those things. But building one another up, pursuing Christian maturity together is a way of living. And that's what Paul shows us in pretty much the entire rest of the letter. He fleshes out what it means, what it looks like when the church is building itself up, working together toward maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I do have to point out, uh, I'm just going to fly through some of these things that, that Paul shows us, but it is noteworthy that he puts doctrinal stability uh, early on in his, his discussion here. Not children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, this, this doesn't mean that we are all going to be academically-minded theologians, that we can all debate superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, or uh, from whom does the Spirit proceed, or who are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, or things like that. The point is that we are grounded in the gospel, and we don't tolerate false gospels, false teaching. As a church, we recognize departures from the gospel of Jesus Christ when we see them, and we, so that we aren't, we aren't just chasing after every new and exciting thing that publishing companies might want to sell us, right? Doctrine does matter, but from about 417 on, uh, Paul spends several chapters showing us in practical terms what it looks like when the church puts this into practice 
when the church builds itself up in love. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he talks about marriage and parenting and, and servants and so forth. Let those relationships be the kind that edify, the kind that display the character of Christ. That's why he includes uh, instruction for bond servants or, or slaves later on, which is troubling to us. Paul is not saying, here's a list of God-ordained relationships along with instructions for fulfilling God's design for them. No, Paul's point is, here's how to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in whatever situation you currently find yourself, whether that situation is part of God's design or or not, right? Because we are in different life situations as we try to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to pursue that measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's going to look a little bit different, depending on whether you're a husband or a wife, or looking back then, if you were a slave, what does that look like? How do you live out this kind of, of Christian maturity? I just want to point out a couple more things about how this works uh, and some examples from the, the latter part of chapter 4. First of all, Paul says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now part of this isn't very much new instruction. Thou shalt not steal is not anything new. But the reversal for this thief, it doesn't end with, Stop, work, or stop stealing and start working to feed yourself, and now your life is on the right track, you'll be great. No, Paul says, stop stealing and work so that you can share with anyone in need. The moral transformation is aimed at caring for others, especially in the life of the church. This edification is how you are to live now helping and serving others. The same is true with corrupting talk. It goes beyond don't say certain words because they upset certain people, but speak in a way that builds up, right? Not corrupting talk, but speech that builds one another up. That idea of edification, again, the actual word used. Using your words to build each other up. So maturity is not about being right, having people think you're good, fitting in among the good church-going set, giving the impression that you belong here. It's about loving one another, working together to display the character of Christ within the life of our church. Fighting sin in our lives and helping others fight sin is certainly part of Paul's instruction. He repeatedly in, in Ephesians discusses this, put away the futile ways that the Gentiles lived. But edification goes beyond that into serving and caring for one another within the church, using our gifts, using our words, using whatever resources at our disposal. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, I think, sum this all up very well. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. What is Paul's vision for the church? His vision is Christ Jesus. The love with which 
Christ has loved us. Show the love of Christ to one another. And that's why, to return to the beginning of our sermon, this whole vision rests on the foundation of the gospel. God has redeemed us in Christ. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to live as people who have been redeemed by grace? Ought to involve showing each other a lot of grace. It's no wonder that is first on his list of things. If we are to love one another, though, as Christ loved us, then our first priority as we come together must be receiving Christ's love for us remembering his love for us, centering our fellowship, our church, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God give us grace to do just that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your grace and your mercy, for your love that you poured out to us so freely and the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And that not only have you poured out this grace to us, all of these promises that you will complete this glorious work, make us as living stones into your temple where your glory dwells, that we will one day be freed from sin. But you also give us this wondrous calling that you would use us in the lives of one another and to help us get there, that we would be instruments of your grace within the life of your church. We recognize that we are not sufficient for these things. We are sinful people. We are as likely to get on one another's nerves or hurt each other's feelings as to build them up. And so we do need your continued grace if we are to walk in those good works which you have prepared for us. And so we pray for your grace. We pray for your Spirit's presence in our hearts, in our lives, focusing our hearts on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be awestruck by what you have done for us. Help us to rest secure in your love and your grace. Set us free from the constant temptation to compete with one another, impress one another. Those things lead to deceit and can lead to envy and malice and all the things that we are to put away. So help us to be transformed. 
by the gospel of your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that the love of Christ might be clearly seen in the life of our church. For your glory, we ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.